You're listening to A History of Light for the Artist by W.C. Turk. Part 5, The Collapse of Civilization. The Bronze Age lasted from about 3300 B.C. to 1180 B.C. The transition from Bronze Age to the Iron Age took place relatively suddenly, over the course of several decades. Perhaps no more than the distance between the Second World War and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021 as a reference for time. Archaeologists estimate that date from about 1200 B.C. and 1150 B.C. That is the blink of an eye, historically speaking, but in practicality, a great deal of history transpires in that two or three generations. Evidence, the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, rock and roll, the Korean War and Cold War, Sputnik, disco, President Kennedy's assassination, the civil rights movement, the deaths of Malcolm X, Gandhi, and a half dozen economic recessions, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Apollo moon landings, the Viking landing on Mars, the Mount St. Helens eruption, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Columbia and Challenger shuttle disasters, the dawn of the digital age, the International Space Station, the September 11th attacks, and New Horizons flyby of Pluto just to skim the surface of events. Across the eastern Mediterranean, that change was unexpectedly violent. In East Asia, Europe, the steppes, the Americas, and elsewhere, there was no such upheaval. This was hardly a global event, but it was significant. Geographically, this was the fulcrum of humanity's emergence from Africa. Civilization grew in still precarious and nascent places. The world was redrawing ancient migratory and time-tested travel routes into a global network of commerce and trade routes. The Minoans, for example, imported cumin from India and Iran, likely through Mycenae, and possibly via the Philistines' apparent homeland on Crete, according to a paper published by Israel's Bar Ilan University. The Iron Age Phoenicians traded for cinnamon from Southeast Asia. This was the place where our species first blossomed fully from migratory hunter-gatherers into civilization as we've come to define it. The Egyptian, Hittite, and other civilizations in the region became the nexus of a complex web of commerce and trade that flourished for centuries, reaching as far away as modern-day Afghanistan, India, and Southeast Asia to Africa, the Baltics, and Northern Europe. While localized havoc brought down the empires of the Levant, the catalyst may in fact have been felt globally. It is worth an exploration into the catalyst for that catastrophic collapse. Much has been made of the violence and so-called Sea People, a loose confederation of seafaring marauders apparently responsible for a great deal of destruction. And to be sure, the Sea Peoples were real. They are recorded in Egyptian hieroglyphs as assailing the Egyptian homeland over the course of three kings and almost 100 years. But who were the so-called Sea People? They are first recorded as being fended off in 1274 BC by the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. His son Merneptah, who reigned between the summer of 1213 BC and spring of 1203 BC, defeated an allied sea people and Libyan force. 
They returned in 1180 BC and 1178 BC, but were defeated by Ramses III. It is hardly certain that these were all the same people, attacking over a century, though there is some evidence leading towards that conclusion, as well as evidence for whom the Sea People may have been, at least in part. Maybe the larger question is whether the Sea People and other invaders were the cause or a symptom of something more. We can look at contemporary history for time frames for which popular and revolutionary social movements arise and spread. Locally, discontented and disenfranchised issues may simmer for months or years or even decades, awaiting the spark that drives overnight reactions and revolts. The Sea People are described as being multi-ethnic, or of many different peoples. But what would cause people from different nations or regions across the Eastern Mediterranean or Southern Europe to band together and sow such destruction? Simply describing the late Bronze Age collapse as being caused by a change in climate is too simple. Archaeologists analyzed ancient pollen grains from Lanarka Salt Lake in Cyprus. Together with ancient writings describing famine and crop failures, they concluded that a great drought affected the region, and it may well have played a part. But we can well imagine the famine and drought-stricken Hittites, burdened by ever-growing populations with food, water, and energy needs, recoiling from trade to focus on more pressing needs, or retreating from trade deals for lack of trading material. With limited soil management knowledge, farmers worked shrinking and less and less productive fields. As we saw with the goddess in Heduana, and the story of the farmer almost 2,000 years earlier, close to the margin as cities and civilizations existed at the time, one bad harvest could prove devastating. All of this would have had a seismic effect far beyond the region. It would have burned through those trade routes, affecting communities all along that web-like supply chain, each community, along with trade routes, exacting some price. With those sources now strained or broken, a significant social, political, and economic upheaval would prove a likely consequence. Hattusa, the capital of the Hittite Empire, already under pressure from the Assyrian Empire, seems to have fallen to the mountain-dwelling Kaskians from eastern Anatolia and the Phrygians from what is today Bulgaria and western Turkey. Both groups would have suffered from disruptions in overland trade routes from Hattusa and the Hittite Empire. Withered by warfare with neighbors like the Assyrians, Hattusa would have offered easy prey for vengeful trading partners. All roads, good and bad, ultimately lead to the center of wealth and power. Once a grand city, Hattusa was ringed by massive double walls and more than 100 towers. Its approaches were guarded by great stone lions at its arched stone gates. Overrun around 1200 BC, this pearl of the ancient Hittite Empire was burned to the ground and abandoned. The rule held disastrously true. On what is today the Syrian coast, just opposite Cyprus, the great market bazaar of the Hurrian Empire had been driven into decline after repeated Hittite assaults. The last Hurrian king in Ugarit, Amurapi, begged for the help of the kingdom of Alashia on the neighboring island of Cyprus. Quote, My father, behold, the enemy ships came here, my cities were burned, and they did evil things in my country. 
does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of the Hatti, and that all of my ships are in the land of Luca? Thus, the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it. The seven ships of the enemy that came here inflicted much damage upon us. Close quote. In his 2014 book, 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, Eric Klein shows Alashia's response indicated a rebellion of sorts or a general insurrection. Quote, As for the matter concerning those enemies, it was the people from your country and your own ships who did this, and it was the people from your country who committed these transgressions. I am writing to inform you and to protect you. Be aware. The source for that is Klein, Eric H., 2014, translation of letter RS 20.18 in 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, Princeton University Press, page 151. But did an impoverished and desperate local constituent ally with others, similarly dejected by starvation or a cutoff of trade revenues, turn to raiding for survival? Whatever the cause, archaeologists point to radiocarbon dating as well as Egyptian sources to put the date of Ugarit's ultimate destruction at between 1192 and 1190 BC. It was much the same at Troy as Homer called it in his Iliad. The Hittites, it seems, referred to the city of Velusa, and it was likely the capital of the Luvian people. Velusa was uniquely positioned to control sea traffic from the Aegean Sea to the south and west and the Sea of Marmara and the entrance to the Black Sea to the north and east. In continuous habitation from at least 3000 BC, the city was destroyed about 1250 BC, roughly within a decade or so of Ramsay II's first fight with the, quote, sea peoples, unquote. Rebuilt, it was again sacked and burned to the ground in 1180 BC. What is significant to our journey and to our storytelling tradition as a species is that these events were chronicled by ancient writers. Even with the historically fictionalized tale by Homer, that story led Frank Calvert and Heinrich Schliemann to discover Troy's ruins in 1871. No longer a means of accounting or moralistic poetry, writing, pictorial or cuneiform writing, chronicled the history of civilization. Its power was both recognized and accepted readily, perhaps because it could be held by the reader. The weight of the written word gave it a special credence. That leads to some powerful and profound speculations regarding the trust and sanctity we hold for the written word even today in the digital age. The Bronze Age gave way to iron sometime around 1200 BC. Undoubtedly, that was a process already underway. We can well imagine that it was a technology awaiting its opportunity. But just as we find today a difficulty separating from polluting legacy forms of energy, bronze was simpler and cheaper than more plentiful iron. Indeed, the technological leap of increasing the heat needed to smelt iron was a disincentive. Iron offered viable local options to the Bronze Age drought and subsequent collapse of trade, most especially in tin. The other key development is that the fiery production of iron and the use of silicates like sand or silicon dioxide had an accidental consequence. 
when silicate sand reaches a temperature of 3200 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1720 degrees Celsius, it melts and bonds forming a shiny substance called glass. Coinciding with the Bronze Age in the Near East, roughly 3400 to 1200 BC, was the start of the Glass Age. Mesopotamian artists became early masters of this infant discovery. Glass is described as a non-crystalline, amorphous solid. Okay, that sounds a bit complicated, but there is something curious about glass. Amorphous literally means mysterious, or at least undefined. It seems rather intuitive to take the transparency of glass as a given until we stop and consider that it is, in fact, a solid. So why would light pass through a pane of glass or lens and not through a piece of wood or metal of the same thickness? A solid should be a solid, right? That's where glass gets interesting and makes so much in our lives possible. Toasting over a fine crystal flute, a champagne, insulated from a winter storm, illuminated by a chandelier, peering out into the universe or into the microscopic world. It is also where scientific and practical usage of glass intersects with the sublime art of Venetian glassblowers, as well as sculpture and decoration. The artistic expression and manipulation of glass comes into beautiful and colorful focus, but the physics of why glass behaves as it does has eluded science until recently. A 2021 article published in Nature Materials sought to no pun intended, illuminate that very mystery. What researchers found was that non-crystalline amorphous glass has the same structural characteristics as crystalline metallic glass. In the June 15, 2021 SciTechDaily.com article, Professor Wang Zhuli, Chair, Professor of Physics and Head of the Department of Physics at City University of Hong Kong's Dongguan Research Institute, who led the study, said that their, quote, experimental study shed light on the structure of amorphous materials at extended length scales. This will go a long way to aiding our efforts to figure out the structure of glass, close quote. The mystery continues, though. Thanks to the Hong Kong research team, things are a little bit clearer. Again, apologies for the pun. Still, the relatively recent discovery of glass is apparent in its etymology. The origin of the word is attributed to the so-called Proto-Indo-European language, a family of languages dated to between 4500 and 2500 BC. The people who spoke the Indo-European family of languages corresponds to a region of the Pontic Steppe between the Black and Caspian Seas. The descendants of the Proto-Indo-European language can be found in Punjabi, Bengali, Hindi, and Urdu in the Indian subcontinent, Persian, Russian, German, Latin languages, and English. It was truly a global language. The Old English word is glaze, meaning to shine. The word is related to the Celtic word gloss, the Old Norse word glare, Old High German gloss, and the Latin glazum. The Proto-Indo-European word is gel, or gel, which appears to refer to cold or to freeze. It is a simple leap to connect the idea of cold or frozen ice and clear or translucent glass. 
The word, or something similar, may be as old as the Ice Age cultures of the steppes, and perhaps, in close approximation, as old as our human language itself. We're getting to the glass of Galileo's telescope and the James Webb telescope, but it is crucial to understand how humanity arrived there first. Our little photon is deceptively simple, but don't be fooled. There is a beautiful complexity imbued within, especially with glass, as part of our universal feedback loop. As we saw earlier, the first writing appears about the same time as the rise of bronze in Sumer. What does that have to do with glass? The roots of all three technologies are far older, but it is only between 3400 BC and 2500 BC that they emerge in the archaeological record in the Eastern Mediterranean. Likewise, there was a blossoming of art and sculpture, from stunningly designed pottery and statues to anthropomorphized figures and jewelry. This blossoming of art and technology and literature are interwoven and fundamental to our understanding of light. It was essential to the evolution of emerging movements in art, science, and society, and ultimately our exploration of the fundamental elements of design created by the first moments of the Big Bang. 400 years after the earliest believed date for the Epic of Gilgamesh, around 1700 BC, there seemed a rewriting and expansion of existing literature, most especially the Atrahasis, the first known story of the Great Flood. In the story, gods ruled the world before it was inhabited by people. The gods were divided into two groups, the lesser gods, the Igigi, who were ruled by the Anunnaki. Forced by the Anunnaki to dig the Tigris and Euphrates, the Igigi rebelled. Seeking a solution to appease the Igigi, the Anunnaki created humanity. But as their population grew, Enlil, the Mesopotamian god associated with wind, air, earth, and storms, grew increasingly disgruntled with their growing racket. Enlil sent drought, famine, and pestilence to destroy humanity. Each time, Enlil's efforts were betrayed by the god of wisdom, Enki, who gave humanity instructions on how to overcome each of Enlil's curses. At last he conceived of a great flood. Enki warned a human servant named Atrahasis. In a dream, Enki instructed Atrahasis on the building of an ark, which would be sealed with bitumen. He was to collect two of every creature on earth, one male and one female which would be cared for by he and his family. If all this sounds a bit familiar, you would be right. About this time, the Minoan Linear A script first appears in the archaeological record. Roughly 100 years later, writing developed during China's Shang Dynasty. In the Indian subcontinent, the Rig Veda, an ancient collection of Vedic Sanskrit hymns, appears between 1500 and 1100 BCE. Writing was the most successful technology ever conceived. Where and how did writing begin? It appears now that it was inevitable. One of those feedback loops, like numbers and accounting, which fed economics, ownership, and property rights. How, we can envision our ancient ancestors asking, must society organize and define itself? What are the guardrails or rules that guide society? Storytelling was always part of the human experience. Which of those ancient spoken word stories would answer greater questions such as origin, power, and morality? Those first written words were establishing scripts, 
everything that would follow would be evolutionary variations on those original themes. Their abstraction was another leap in our intellectual evolution, and certainly, over time, drove physical changes in the human brain. Steps. A 2016 study from the Harvard Medical School showed that a number of brain regions are connected through reading and comprehension. That begins in the womb with a child's early recognition of a mother's voice. Reading is a leap of intellect, which requires a massive information download, which equates abstract symbols with their real-world equivalents. Ancient societies would have faced that very same download equivalent laid over forging and building upon musical storytelling pathways within the human brain. As we have seen, bronze gave rise to the Iron Age and the emerging Greek civilization in the Aegean roughly around 1200 BC. Building upon the Mesopotamian and Egyptian discoveries before them, the Greeks would revolutionize science and philosophy in a particular importance to our friend the photon, and ultimately the artist, the science of mathematics and geometry. Over the course of the next 1,000 years, the Greeks would produce some of the greatest scientific minds and artistic talents ever to have existed, though we might credit that adoption to the architectural and engineering legacy of the Minoan civilization. The Minoans, which we will come to in due course, preceded the constantly warring and feuding Mycenaean Greeks by more than a thousand years. The collapse and disappearance of the Mycenaean civilization at the brutal end of the Near Eastern Bronze Age collapse would lead to the dawn of Greek civilization. We must pause here to clarify terms. Clarity is fundamental. Simply the term civilization leads one to suppose a singular unified culture. The Greeks were hardly unified. While there were commonalities to their language and culture, ancient Greece was at best a loose confederation of city-states and territories. They often bickered and warred with one another, as well as with their neighbors. In fact, in their almost 1,100-year history, the Greeks were only truly united for about 13 years, from about 336 BC to 323 BC under the reign of Alexander the Great, a Macedonian, by the way. The Greeks did not invent writing or literature, sculpture, architecture, philosophy, geometry, or theater, but they became meticulous inheritors of those pillars of human culture to such an extent that their contributions are cited and heralded as seminal to the progress of human culture to this day. The Greeks, building upon those now vanished Bronze Age sculptures, codified styles of thought, politics, math, and art pioneered much, much earlier. That codification was not exclusive to the Greeks. The Chinese and Indians founded great philosophical ideas and created great empires to rival anything conceived in the West. It was the depth and the way Greek society fostered this culture as Greeks built their city-states and excelled in their art. I'll pause here because a bit of historical genetic context is important. It bears repeating that there is no argument to be made for cultural superiority of any group over another, genetically speaking. The science of genetics has only proved to underscore just how mixed and interwoven we are as a species. To illustrate that point, we only have to look at the once mysterious appearance of the ancient Greeks, who seemed to appear from the ashes of the Bronze Age Mycenaean culture on the Greek peninsula and archipelago. 
In 2017, a study published in the journal Nature sequenced and compared the DNA from 19 people from Minoan Crete dating between 2900 BC and 1700 BC, Mycenaean sites in Greece between 1700 BC and 1200 BC, and ancient farmers in Greece and Anatolia between 5400 BC and around 1340 BC. The study showed that the Minoans and Mycenaeans shared some three-quarters of their DNA from those first farmers. Both the Minoans and Mycenaeans also shared DNA from people who migrated from what is today northwestern Iran sometime following the settlement of the early farmers, but before the Minoans and Mycenaeans became distinct and separate cultures. Additionally, the Mycenaeans also held between 4 and 16% DNA from cultures who came from Eastern Europe, Northern Russia, or Siberia. The Greeks were truly a global people. Researchers from the University of Copenhagen, reporting in LiveScience.com, November 2013, studied 24,000-year-old skeletal remains in Siberia. The DNA study showed a connection to Mesoamericans and Neolithic Western Europeans. The world is intimately connected. So we have established a genetic continuity between Bronze Age Greeks and their Iron Age inheritors. But what was it that made the Greeks the Greeks and made them the cultural heirs to the Mycenaeans? The Mycenaeans' Linear B script descended from the still undeciphered Linear A script of the Minoan civilization. Linear B had a distinct advantage over its contemporary cuneiform counterpart, if for nothing else, for its relative simplicity. The Mycenaean script sported about 200 syllabic and ideographic symbols, compared with more than 1,000 for cuneiform. They both ceased to be used with their cultures during the Bronze Age collapse. Across Anatolia, the Greek Peninsula, and Eastern Mediterranean, for the next several hundred years, or until about 900 BC, there is no record of writing whatsoever. The human forces of ignorance and destruction were complete in their cause, at least for a while. The Greeks inherited their gods from the Mycenaeans. The Greeks inherited their gods from the Mycenaeans. This narrative is not going to spend much capital on a comparison of Mycenaean and Greek gods or ancient religion, inasmuch as they contribute to a fuller understanding of our shared human perspective and experience. There are many other resources discussing ancient Greek religion, but it is important to understand that religion is important to human culture. Often, it was a driver of culture and most especially the arts. It embodies the light and the dark, the good and destructive aspects of our nature. For example, there is the darkness illustrated by mankind's self-destructive penchant for war and violence so often manifested in competition between religions or sanctified through nationalism flavored and tinted by religiosity or when used to excuse or justify individual or communal evils like slavery or genocide. In this narrative, God, or gods, is a vehicle for quantifying the wholeness and grandiosity of life and the universe within the prism of human perspective. It is an evolutionary process. Recall the Hollenstein Stadel, created some 38,000 years ago, 
The common theme in all human religion is humanizing of a universal deity or deities. Because the individual, and by extension, our human bodies, are the starting point for our understanding of the universe. It becomes a truly useful illustration for distillation of the incomprehensible. The place to begin with the Greeks is not their religion, but with their intellect. We begin with Homer, born around 700 BC. The sun has already set on the Bronze Age collapse. The destruction of Troy is already past more than five centuries earlier. If Homer's epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, bear any resemblance to actual events, it is likely due to our storytelling traditions passed across generations. We can speculate about the accuracy which serves as a fictionalized fait accompli, indicating the Mycenaean Greeks' complicity in at least part of the Bronze Age collapse. The language of the Iliad was passed orally among bards and poets trained and skilled to compose and recite verses. The Greek bard recited poetry through a hypnotic and lyrical dialect understood but not spoken by average Greeks. That discipline would have helped preserve the core of the story once it reached Homer's ears. If we believe it grew from contemporary witnesses to the fall of Troy, the journey of 500 years is daunting. Musical, linguistic, and poetic tastes and styles change and evolve constantly. There is a huge gulf between the Renaissance work of Petrarch and Ezra Pound or Maya Angelou. What we do know is Homer, along with the Greek Iron Age culture, emerged from the haze of that mostly isolated regional Dark Age, is that Homer may be the final author, but that was at the end of a very long line of contributors. Many of those first contributors were almost certainly Mycenaean, but from the tablet records, they apparently placed far more importance to the permanence of accounting than in literature. No surviving Mycenaean literature has yet been found. Two and a half centuries later, the Greek philosopher Socrates, born circa 470 BC to 399 BC, mentored Plato. Greek philosophy also became the bridge between ancient Greek theater and those deeper thoughts in literature through music. But we'll cover that in more detail a little bit later on. Plato's cousin Specipus described the would-be philosopher as a quiet but diligent student. A student turned teacher, Plato would mentor Aristotle, who in turn taught Alexander the Great before he was, you know, great. And while it seemed unlikely to compare Alexander the Great, known as a conqueror and a warrior, with the arts, he is absolutely essential to the artist. One can draw, with a bit of imagination and illumination, a line from Alexander to the Impressionists and Claude Monet, as well as to Dickens, Dostoevsky, and E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey. Our comprehension of the photon as an enigmatic particle and wave is due in no small part to the conquests of Alexander, as we shall see. Cut from natural cliffs, meeting at right angles to one another, Aristotle's school at Maeza's Shrine of the Nymphs in ancient Macedonia echoes with the lyrical sound of water from a rocky ravine below the school. It is a secluded place. Great leafy vines shroud cliff walls. From the school itself, paths run the length of the cliffs. 
there is a reflecting and bathing pool cut from the bedrock. It is the perfect place for meditation and quiet contemplation. The roof of the school was constructed by heavy timber. The floor, most likely wood, perhaps covered with elegantly woven carpets and mats against the chill mountain air. We can imagine charts or tapestries and scrolls of Aristotle's theorems and equations or maps on the walls. In the courtyard, the imagination readily conjures luscious hanging gardens. On two sides, the building was framed by bold and sturdy ionic columns. A stone desk stood at one side against the cliff wall. The students sat on simple stone seats. Outside was a small, intimate amphitheater cut from the cliffside. A rushing creek below the school filled the space with lyrical sound, joined by the chatter of songbirds in the trees, the creaking of passing wagons from surrounding farms lending themselves to the luxury of unencumbered thought. This, according to Herodotus, was where the fertile gardens of King Midas were located. Aristotle's school at Maesa was where King Philip II of Macedon sent his headstrong son, Alexander, hoping to change the narrative the southern Greeks held about his kingdom as being a land of barbarous and, un and uncultured people. Alexander's classmates were drawn from the privileged families of nobles. Among those whom he attended alongside at Maesa was Ptolemy I, future satrap of Egypt, and perhaps Alexander's closest friend and ally, and a member of Alexander's personal bodyguard, Hephaestion. From about 343 to 340 BC, Aristotle taught the future great Alexander. Under the tutelage of the greatest living mind of his time, Alexander received the finest education. Comparatively, it would have been like receiving an education from Jean-Paul Sartre and Stephen Hawking. Young Alexander would have learned history and philosophy, ethics, mathematics, and grammar, foundations for the young and audacious if headstrong prince. Written in 350 BC, Aristotle's metaphysics would have been a part of Alexander's curriculum. It begins describing the importance of art. Quote, At first, he who invented any art whatsoever went beyond the common perceptions of man, was naturally admired by men, not only because there was something useful in the inventions, but because he was thought wise and superior to the rest. But as more arts were invented, and some were directed to the necessities of life, others to recreation, the inventories of the latter were naturally always regarded as wiser than the inventors of the former, because their branches of knowledge did not aim at utility. Hence, when all such inventions were already established, the sciences, which do not aim at giving pleasure, or at the necessities of life were discovered, and the first in the places where men began to have leisure. This is why the mathematical arts were founded in Egypt, for there the priestly caste was also allowed to be at leisure." Unquote. Thought wise and superior to the rest. Those words written more than 2,300 years ago are filled with meaning. Aristotle is describing the exalted position which art held, and has held, and will always hold. It is that essential to who we are as sentient beings. Though Aristotle, through Aristotle, Alexander developed a passion for Homer's Iliad. 
he kept a hand-scribed copy given by Aristotle with him on his later military campaigns. For better or for worse, he would employ the foundation learned from Aristotle for future adventures and conquests of the known world, at least as it was known to the Greeks. Indeed, Alexander's exploits have exceeded the bounds of legend, but for the artist and for our understanding of light, reality, and the universe, Alexander is responsible for setting in motion something even more profound. That is due in no small part to Alexander's confidence, and in particular, his ego. Coming up in part six, the conquests of Alexander and the founding of Alexandria. You're listening to A History of Light for the Artist by W.C. Turk. Music